0: Let me take you on a journey to the coldest place on Earth and its last and greatest wilderness, on a voyage to Antarctica. Welcome to A Voyage to Antarctica, brought to you by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. I'm your host, Alok Jha. What can studying the remains of ancient ice sheets in Antarctica tell us about climate change and the future of the planet? Answering that question today will be Dr Kelly Hogan, a marine geophysicist at the British Antarctic Survey. Kelly works on research vessels around Antarctica, looking for clues about how ancient ice sheets flowed and eventually receded back towards the land. In addition to more than ten trips to the Arctic, Kelly's been on five research cruises to Antarctica. Her most recent trips have been to study the Thwaites Glacier. New research there has revealed huge channels underneath the glacier, which funnel in warm ocean water. How did you come to become interested in Antarctica? Where? How did your career take you there? I think
1: the first thing thing that sort of pointed me in the direction of Antarctica in particular was um, was during my undergraduate degree, which was in geology um, at Oxford. And there was a guest lecturer there, a guy called Gary Wilson, and he had done fieldwork, terrestrial fieldwork, so on land fieldwork in Antarctica Lived in a field camp, studied the rocks there, but also what the rocks meant in terms of what the climate was doing. So how cold it was, and when it was when it was warmer. And he showed us this sort of glimpse of um, glimpse of Antarctica and glimpse of the questions relating to how the climate behaves there, how it controls the ice, what the feedbacks are for the whole global system. And I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. Um, and that was really that was really the bug for me.
0: What was it about the uh, the stories you, you got told there was it um, the was it the science itself or was it the sense of adventure and the, the idea that you would be having to go to somewhere which which very few people get to go to
1: yeah i think it 's hard to uh, it 's hard to pretend that the sense of adventure isn 't isn 't a factor but I think in terms of the science, what really caught me was that there was still quite a lot of um, unknown questions uh, to answer in, for Antarctica. It's obviously quite a hard place to work. It's very far away. Uh, it's very remote. It's hard to get to. It's hard to access the things that you want to study, because a lot of the things you might want to study are under several miles of ice or under s- several miles of ocean. Um, so it's it's quite tricky place to work, but it's But the questions are so big and so global and so important. So it it sort of seemed like a place where we could still do a a ton of work and, um, and really important work. And there were still a lot of questions to resolve.
0: So tell me, what was the first time you went to Antarctica?
1: The first time that I went to Antarctica was actually during my PhD studies and it was in 2007 and I was asked to join a research cruise really as as an extra pair of hands to look after some of the geophysical instruments on board while they were surveying. Um, and that was my first, yeah, my first visit to Antarctica. We um, we actually visited one of the big UK research bases, which is called uh, Rothera Research Station on the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, and so we actually got to get off the ship and land, and that's quite a big thing if you work on ships. Sometimes you can do whole cruises and never never step onto um, onto the land or onto the continent at all that you're studying. And so that was really a phenomenal experience. And then we went off and, and did our work offshore there which included using um, a very early uh, ROV a remotely operated vehicle to send it down to dive down to the seafloor and study lots of different things from geology to biology so it was really a fascinating cruise.
0: You are a marine geophysicist so tell us um, what what one of those um, scientists does.
1: Yes I am I, as I said a a bit before, I study the seafloor around Antarctica, but what we, how we do that is to use um, sound in sort of different guises that we emit from a ship and we send it down to the seafloor and then it is reflected back to us. And, you know, we use a variety of different frequencies and different instruments to, to study different things. One of the main things that I look at is the shape of the seafloor and how that's been sculpted and shaped by ice in the past and how we do that is to send a sort of fan if you can imagine a fan of sound going down to the seafloor and then coming back up to the ship and and recorded um you record the time that it comes back up to the ship and then as you the ship moves along you sort of map out these features on the seafloor sort of in 3d because this fan is moving back and forth you can imagine it like you are mowing the lawn with your lawn mower so you're going up and down up and down and sending these pulses of sound down to the seafloor bringing them back and then recording the depth down to the seafloor so you eventually get this big 3d map of what the seafloor looks like
0: so but instead of instead of a lawn mower you're using um sound waves to to sort of sweep across the uh, the ground is it where? Or, exactly. or the seafloor rather um so yeah. once when you as you build up this three-dimensional map of the seafloor um and understand what's down there what what is that telling you how is that feeding into the sort of larger picture of the continent
1: yeah what it tells us is how ice flowed and moved around and behaved during full, what we call full glacial periods, um, so the last one was the last glacial maximum, it was about twenty thousand years ago to about ten thousand years ago, um, and and what happened then was that Antarctica grew out um, onto the sort of shallow sea floor around the continent, um, and the ice grew out from Antarctica and and flowed over it, and so then after that cold period ended and the ice moved back towards the land, then you know these the shapes that the ice left on the seafloor are sort of exposed, um, you know, in sort of pristine condition on the seafloor. So we can use what we call glacial landforms. So these sculpted forms on the seafloor to tell us about things like how the ice moved, where it flowed, how fast it was moving, whether there was water there, um, and then also how quickly it retreated and whether it moved back because it got melted or because it was carving big icebergs or a combination. So it really can tell us lots of different things about how how ice behaves um, by studying these sort of past records.
0: And all of this is telling you about how the climate on the earth has changed over the course of hundreds of thousands, millions of years.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, the seafloor around Antarctica and what I've just described tells you tells us most about the most recent time that ice grew out over it. But you can look further offshore as well, and you can look and you can drill down into the piles of seafloor sediments, so just muds and sands, um, and you can get uh, a record of those going back through time. And you can look for things like. Um, the last time there were these big uh, releases of icebergs from Antarctica and they drop a very special kind of um, debris to the seafloor. And so you get these records of um, of armadas of icebergs uh, leaving Antarctica during, you know, when you have one of these big events when um, when ice is lost from Antarctica. So you can get these records over, yes, thousands to millions of years if you go a little bit further offshore than than. Than right where I was just describing.
0: Actually, that's a good question. How far back can you piece together the past using this method? Well, we you can use various
1: seafloor records to go all the way back to the first time there was ice on Antarctica, and that's about 35 million years ago. So you can get these, use these deep sea records to um, to basically measure the amount of um, different oxygen isotope ratios in the, that are caught up in the, um, some of the bugs that live in the ocean and then they die and they fall down to the bottom of the seafloor. Um, and the ratio of these different oxygen isotopes tells you also actually about the volume of ice that's on land. So you can go basically all the way back to the start of um, ice on Antarctica.
0: It seems incredible to me that there was a time that there wasn't ice on Antarctica. I suppose this is the this is the thing about human um, human mental capacity to think about deep history, uh, which is that Antarctica, for all of human history, has basically been an ice locked, uh, well, uh, f- full of ice. It's the it's the forbidden continent, and all those things. The idea that it might have been something completely different in the history of the Earth, and for most of the history of the Earth, is is so strange to think.
1: I think it's, I think it is quite hard for people to visualize and because you, what you're talking about is moving continents around from, from where they are now to. Totally different positions, you know. You the reason that Antarctica didn't have ice before that was because it was joined up with South America and and Africa and and so you it wasn't isolated by the ocean and and couldn't get as cold as it is today. Um, so it's really quite hard for us to to visualize. But I think you know we're we're lucky to be able to go there and to to study what's going on there. And you know colleagues of mine that I work with they study these fossilized forests and they find evidence of these great big bivalves that used to live there in much warmer conditions Um, and you know so we sort of see it with our eyes we see the fossils and we see the record um, of those warmer times and it is um it is really fascinating
0: can you take us to antarctica um, in our minds tell us what a typical day for you might be like uh, when you're when you're there in a in a season
1: So, a typical day for me working on a ship. So, I work on research ships when I'm um, in Antarctica. And a typical day for me will be probably a 12 hour shift where I'm on and working for 12 hours. So, I'd probably get up an hour before that and have breakfast and, um, you know, in a canteen, a communal canteen with everyone else. And then start our shift. We'd have a handover session with the, the previous shift to tell us what they'd been doing and, and what the plans were and what the weather was looking like and what we were hoping to achieve for that day. Um, and then during my shift, which would probably be sort of between four and six people on a shift, um, we could be doing some seafloor mapping, in which case we have to monitor all the machines and fix any problems that come up. And we start looking at the data and cleaning it and analyzing it and talking about it within the group. Um, And then we also make plans for where we're going to take those sediment samples from the seafloor. And if we were doing that, then we might be out on the deck, you know, all dressed up, you know, really wrapped up warm. um, Putting these big coring devices um, down to the seafloor and bringing them back up again and taking out the material and processing it in the lab. So it can be quite varied. um, but also quite hard work, and you know, if you imagine doing twelve-hour uh, shifts seven days on repeat, because you don't waste any days. You know, there's no weekends when you're uh, working in Antarctica. You you don't waste any of your time. You know, you keep going. So you know, it does get it
0: does get tiring. I, it sounds tiring listening to that, especially given how cold it must be, and also if you're standing on deck for a period of time, bringing up um, cores from the from the sea floor. I mean, that's going to be muddy. Uh, sort of slightly dirty work, right? It's this is this is quite manual physical exertion going on.
1: Yeah, I think it's um <clears throat> oh excuse me. Um yeah, it, it can be um Muddy and cold and wet, and you know where we were working for the past two seasons uh, at Thwaites Glacier in West Antarctica. You know we were outside in temperatures of minus twenty. Um, we were coring at night, so we were out on the deck. You know, in the it was actually dark at that time, and um, so it was dark. It was that doesn't snowing. sound like fun at all. <laughs> so, uh, well, <laughs> really. you, you you say that, but then um, but when you're there, it's kind of a magical experience because you're you know you're in this place that no one has ever been to before and you're collecting samples that that no one has ever been able to get before. And and you also know that at any time you can probably pop back into the ship and, you know, get a hot drink. So it's, it's not the same as being on the ice sheet itself, I'd say. Um, but it, yeah, it can be pretty tiring too.
0: What's, the, what's life on board the ship like? You say you work seven days a week, but you must have some downtime. Um, otherwise, you, you can't possibly continue for months and months on end working every single day, 12 hours like that.
1: Well, um, a typical research cruise is probably about six or seven weeks for, for somewhere sort of deep, dark Antarctica, where it takes a while to get there and a while to get back. Um, so you probably only do the twelve-hour shifts for you know maybe five five weeks or or something like that, um, with travel time on either end. I suppose your downtime is your twelve hours off in between in between your twelve. In which you've
0: got to sleep as well, of course.
1: <laughs> which you've got to sleep um there's there's a gym there's on board and um, there's a sauna and uh, there's a movie room things like that I think um
0: oh now you're talking that yeah. sounds good
1: <laughs> well the, the the best ship that I've been on in terms of downtime actually was a Swedish icebreaker the uh, icebreaker Odin and she's a really beautiful ship and they have two saunas on board and each one of those has a little lounge area outside so you can uh, take your cold beer and put it in the fridge and then you can pop in the sauna at the end of your long day of shift and then you can come out and enjoy a cold beer it's the swedes know how to do things
0: okay and now you're talking that sounds like more my kind of Antarctic expedition There's that cliche that goes around, isn't there, that we know less about the seafloor of the Earth than we do about the surface of the moon. Is that true? I think that's
1: true. And I think it probably extends to places like Mars as well. You know, we have um, very, very high resolution, essentially satellite data sets from Mars that tell us about the shape of the surface of Mars and people talk about where they can see evidence for water and and that kind of thing um, there. But it's much harder to do when 70% of your planet is covered in, in water. You know, we, we don't have that kind of resolution of the seafloor. We, we still have to go out and um, make our measurements from ships to be able to make those 3D maps of the seafloor on Earth. So, so we do know a lot, a lot less about, about that than certainly the Moon or, um, or Mars, but, but we are getting there. And there are some big global initiatives, actually, things like uh, Seabed uh, 2030, which is uh, a global push to get all nations to be mapping the seafloor whenever they can from all of their vessels, and to build up that uh, the picture of the seafloor.
0: Your research is part of a suite of things that go on around Antarctica, um, around you know climate. Um, research on climate, research into wildlife, um, physics research, looking for neutrinos in the South Pole, all sorts of stuff goes on um, around and on the continent. Um, And I just want to know, could you just put your piece of it, the idea of understanding the seafloor in this way, how does that fit into the sort of history of scientific research on the continent?
1: Since the nineteen? well, since Scott's expedition when they took scientists um, and explored and, and they were actually doing geological studies and making geological maps at that time. Um, but, you know, uh, the British Antarctic Survey has been sending geologists down to Antarctica since, um, you know, the 1950s or so. And, you know, they, but they were moving around on land and trying to get rock samples and trying to map, you know, the, the outcrops of the, of the mountains, you know, what the rocks they could see with their eyes. Um, so, if you think about where where does mapping the seafloor fit into it, and um, we really didn 't have the tools to be able to do that really efficiently until sort of the early 1990s when um, when these sonars that are called multi beam sonars that send this fan of sound down to the seafloor and back again became more widespread in in science vessels um, so so even though you know we are there is a big drive to collect this kind of data now. um, And it is really important to understand the sort of long term record of what's gone on with ice in Antarctica. Um, you know, it's actually a fairly new science and the the pace of technology, and our technological advances is really helping with that. And probably we can talk more about um, autonomous vehicles and, and the future of that kind of science as well.
0: Well, let's talk about that because it, you, you mentioned earlier um, ROVs, these remotely operated vehicles, which is one of the first things you had to look after when you went to Antarctica um, for the, uh, in, in two thousand and seven was it? Um, yes, that's right. So, so just tell us where that's how that technology has come along because you know the idea of measuring things um, in very harsh environments like Antarctica has really been helped by essentially by robots and with machines that can sort of. Really dive very deep, sort of without putting human human life at risk.
1: Yeah, we are entering um a, basically a new technological era in terms of what we can do um in marine environments in places like Antarctica and and in polar regions. Uh I think I could I could just compare what we did in 2007. So the remotely op- operated vehicle that we had there with us is called ISIS, which is a bit of an unfortunate name now. Um but but this vehicle was is tethered to the ship, so it has a cable running back to the ship. So um, you know you have to you have to stay within a certain range, and you are limited by the length of cable that there is. Um, it was quite hard to independently locate the ROV, so it's quite hard to um, you know put a gyro compass or, or an instrument on the ROV to know exactly where it is. So then it's quite hard to locate where you are actually doing your mapping and where you're working, um, and you know, there's, there was a lot of technology that you need just to keep the ROV running and you need big cameras. If you want to see anything, a large part of what we were doing there, oh, sorry, not, not just big cameras, big lights, because there's no light, obviously, um, under hundreds of meters of water. And so, you know, these, these um, ROVs, well, it had a lot of, a lot of lights, a lot of cameras, and then you're trying to put science instruments on there as well. Um, And now, you know, what we're looking at is being able to send things like, um, AUVs so autonomous underwater vehicles so they're not tethered to the ship there's no one driving them you basically program it to go where you want it to go um, and then you use use put it into the water from the back deck of the ship um, and, and off it goes. And it runs its, you know, runs its course. Um, and, and they have a lot of really um, amazing technology on board to avoid icebergs. And if they do see an obstacle coming up, they do sort of, um, they do little loops to avoid them and then try to come back on track. Um, you know, they have sort of different options uh, of what to do. If, if they run into too much trouble, they basically surface or, or come back to the start point. Um, and all of these things, you have to think very carefully about that when you're in an environment with huge floating icebergs that have, you know, uh, keels or so the bottom bit that floats into the, uh, or is points down into the water that's sort of tens to hundreds of meters deep. Um, but, we're, but we're now able to send those off and they can go underneath these floating bits of ice where we can't get to on a ship and they're very hard to access from the surface as well, very dangerous places to work if there's a lot of crevasses. So we are really entering a, a whole new technological era. Hello, I'm Camilla Nicholls, CEO of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. We work to preserve and protect Antarctica's unique heritage, from the historic huts of early pioneers to the amazing discoveries in climate science. And our mission is to inspire current and future generations to discover, value and protect this precious wilderness. The pandemic has had a significant impact on our work, and we need your generosity now more than ever. Find out how you can help save Antarctica, protect our planet and even adopt a penguin at UKAHT.org. Or search for the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the podcast.
0: And so what kinds of things are you finding out? I mean, we know you've described already that to mapping the sea floor is useful to understand ancient climates and that helps you uh, to see where the ice has been um so in this sort of rapidly increasing data collection phase uh, of, of this of this research using these autonomous uh, robots i just wonder what, what kinds of things are you discovering that um, what, what kinds of um, discoveries are, are being enabled by it all
1: yeah we're um you know we're, we're although there is a big push to use these new technologies we're also quite careful they're all they're very expensive all of these bits of kit and so um, we're really targeting things that are really going to help our drive our understanding forward of these environments um, maybe I can just give you an example from the big project that I'm involved in now which is to study uh, Thwaites glacier in Antarctica it's the international thwaites glacier collaboration Um, and so we've been on two research cruises down to thwaites glacier in west antarctica to study this this particular glacier because it's losing ice so rapidly um, and and at an accelerated rate that you know people are very concerned about its future Um, so what we do is uh, you know what we've done with some of these autonomous vehicles is is send them underneath the ice to places that we can't get to and what we're trying to Do with that is to measure and to understand where warm ocean water is getting underneath the ice and getting to where the ice rests on the seafloor and is doing its most melting. Because if you understand where that melting is happening and how warm that water is and how it flows and how it circulates, then you can put that into your sort of computer model that's trying to do a prediction for how it will behave in the future. The other big thing that our project um, is looking at are to make these sort of longer term records of change for Thwaites. So we know from satellites that uh, from satellite data sets that how Thwaites has behaved over the past sort of 30 or 40 years. But beyond that, sort of on, you know, sort of hundred year timescales, we don't really have a good record. You know, we have no observations of what Thwaites was doing then. Um, So what we want to do is to use the geology of the seafloor and these records that we find just offshore from Thwaites Glacier to tell us, how ice um, at Thwaites behaved in the past. So was it always um, chucking out lots of icebergs? Was it always being melted a lot by warm water? How has the warm water changed? How have the pathways of that warm water changed?
0: In understanding all of those things, what what can we learn about how our climate might change, um, given the sort of the, the stresses we're putting it under?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think that one really important thing that the geological record can give us is an idea of how the planet behaves when it's left to its own devices. So when it's naturally changing due to um, things like the amount of um, solar insulation that we get due to the tilt of the earth um, and things like that. So there's a a natural variability in the earth's climate um, that we can study from the rock record and from deep sea sediment cores and things like that. Um, But now we've sort of, um, you know, with what we're doing right now with um, greenhouse gas emissions and uh, climate change, we're sort of perturbing that system. So what we can get from looking at geology is is some some idea of the boundary conditions of how quickly things can change or how slowly they change. Um, and then we can compare that to the rates of change we're seeing you know, either in temperature or in the amount of ice lost or in the amount of melting um, in Antarctica. And we can compare that to what would happen naturally and we can really get a good handle on, um, you know, on how that might, how ice might behave in the future.
0: Can you tell us what the most surprising thing is that you found on the seafloor?
1: I think probably the most surprising thing that we found, um, in, in my particular research was when we were at Thwaites Glacier two years ago, and it was a really crazy year because for the first time um, in during our the living record, you know, during people's memories, we were able to get really quite close to um, to Thwaites Glacier, so the sea ice that was there and has been there every year since man has has been at Antarctica um, had broken up, and we were able to access an area that no one had ever been to before on a ship. Um, and what the measurements that we made there showed us that the seafloor was several hundred meters or a hundred to several hundred meters deeper than we thought it was. Um, And that was based on sort of using gravity models to to make a model of the seafloor. And what that means is that if you think of, um, you know, a hundred meters so the length of a football pitch deeper than, than you thought it was before. And you think about how much more warm water might be able to get right up to the ice and might be able to do that melting. Then you're really, you know, that's a big error bar that we had. Um, And I think, you know, that was the first time that we, that we've been able to map that area and and to see exactly what um what the shape of the seafloor was underneath this really really important glacier
0: now all of this information that you're finding all of these surprises all of these things that um sort of feed in to our understanding of ancient seafloors how do uh, do do scientists also use this information to um adapt and improve the models for current climate and future climate i mean can we use that in, in in that way too
1: Yes we can use it in the models. I mean I think you have to remember that science um and climate science in particular and studying Antarctica is is very very joined up between the different disciplines between the modelers and the glaciologists and the geologists and the biologists you know you need to know pieces of everyone else's information to to do your own and to do your own work and to understand your own system because they're all connected and so there's two ways that you can use the sort of seafloor information that that I get in my work um, in models and the first is to use that that those new maps of the seafloor of the depth of the seafloor as a boundary condition for the model. So if you were running, you know, looking at how much water was getting into Soates Glacier um, using the old bathymetry or which is the water depth, um, you would obviously have a much different uh, outcome versus the new when you could get all, a lot more water on this, on this deeper, um, when the seafloor was a lot deeper. The other way that we contribute and help models is by looking at the layers of sediment that we find on the seafloor and that gives us records of um, how ice behaved in the past and how quickly some of these changes happened and it's quite important to tell a modeler and and a computer model of how ice behaves how quickly things can happen if you don't have any upper bound or lower bound of how quickly or how slowly some of these processes can happen then the model could run away and be unrealistic so you know we're providing those those Really important boundary conditions on how things might behave, and also what the sea floor looks like, and that, those things are really important to get right before you even start doing the modelling.
0: I just wonder if we always ask the same question to all our interviews at the end, and so this will ask you as well. Why does Antarctica matter to you? Ah,
1: oh, that's such a good question. Um, I was thinking about it this morning, and I think you know my my best answer is that. Um, is that it is such a pristine um, and amazing environment. Um, all of it, you know, the the ice that's there, the ecosystems, that, the animals that live there, um, the ocean creatures that live there. Um, you know, it's, it's this pristine, amazing, beautiful environment that we um, as a planet really have um, committed to protect but it also really responds to what we are doing to the rest of the planet. You know, what we've seen with how um, how much more ice is being lost um, in Antarctica now versus 30 years ago, um, you know, it, it responds. And, you know, even though every, we think everything's um, quiet and still and nothing happens faster, it really is responding to what we're doing um, to the rest of the planet. And I think, you know, that's that's what keeps my attention and my effort um, With with Antarctica.
0: Thank you for listening. A Voyage to Antarctica is brought to you by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. Next time, I'll be talking to the award winning writer Philip Hoare about his lifelong love for and obsession with whales and their history in Antarctica find out more about our guests including photos and videos head to our website at www.ukaht.org or follow our facebook twitter and instagram pages if you enjoyed this episode please don't forget to follow us and rate us wherever you get your podcasts this podcast is part of the trust's antarctica insight program supported by the arts council england the garfield western foundation and the foreign and commonwealth development office a Voyage to Antarctica was presented by me, Alok Jha, and produced by Jessica Norman. Ben Hewis is digital producer, and music and sound design is by Alec Hughes.